Well, the music was just outstanding and God-honoring. Thank you very much, musicians. I'm uh, so delighted to be here. My wife, Sharon, she couldn't be here with me this time, but God willing, she will be next time. She and I have grown very fond of and close to your pastor and his family. They mean so much to us. And uh, so do all of you. I'm really delighted to be here. You know, wherever I go and I preach, people are uh, very courteous and gracious, and they'll always say, what a blessing my preaching or teaching was, and I'm truly grateful for that. But I must say, in a number of churches, and particularly in this church, I'm quite convinced that you folks are a greater blessing to me than I could be to you. So I'm very thankful for that. I'm thankful to be here. Well, I'd like us to open our Bibles today to uh, the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 20, which uh, begins the uh, iteration of what we have come to call the Ten Commandments, though we're going to read only the first six verses. And I want to speak today on um, what perhaps sounds like a a striking topic, which is God abides no competitors. God abides no competitors. Listen first to the inspired word of God, and then you will hear my uninspired words, which I hope and pray are in line with God's inspired word. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. God is a jealous God. That might sound just a little uh, jarring to us. One reason it might sound jarring is that we can't conceive of what a pure, holy jealousy might look like. I mean, our reference for jealousy is our jealousy. It's usually tainted by envy and vindictiveness. I'm jealous that Harry got a new Mustang convertible. Or Mary's great looks just make me so jealous. Well, God's jealousy is not our jealousy. He's our all-loving, all-powerful creator, and he made us for fellowship with him, communion with the Holy Trinity, according to John chapter 17. When we turn away from him, we're turning away from the very reason for our existence. Think about this, if you will. We have no reason to be alive other than to commune with and enjoy and please the triune God. You can understand, therefore, why the first use of jealousy in our English Bible is right here. Right here. 
in Exodus 20. God made us for himself. The first commandment is the prohibition of idolatry because that is the root of all sin. The positive form of that command is found in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, and it's defined by Jesus in Matthew chapter 22. He calls it the first and great commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Actually, these two commandments are really just two sides of the same coin. We love the Lord with every fiber of our being, and if we do, we have no other gods before us. We also shouldn't be surprised when we read in Romans 1 that the root sin that led the Gentiles into apostasy and debauchery was idolatry. Idolatry is mankind's great temptation to turn away from the true God and to worship false gods. We're made as religious beings, which is to say we're made as worshiping beings. And when we refuse to worship God, we don't cease to worship. When we refuse to worship God, we don't cease to worship. We worship other gods. We worship some aspect of the created order, some other person, some other thing some other ideology, some other idea. This idolatry is apostasy from the true God. This apostasy begins in our hearts, the very center of our being, and it moves out from there to reshape our entire lives and culture. It begins right here. This is why God hates and warns of idolatry. Idolatry, turning from communion with the triune God, makes us what we were never intended to be. It warps us, it perverts us if we don't turn from it. This means that God will abide no competitors. If God were to abide competitors, he would be destroying man. First, I would like to say, God will abide no competitors to his authority among men. We live in an era unlike any in uh, human history. Man has declared war on authority. The authority of uh, husbands, the authority of parents, the authority of churches, the authority of pastors, the authority of teachers, of employers, of elected representatives, of the police. Authority everywhere is under siege. But this, at root, is rebellion against God. Paul writes in Romans 13 that Christians should not rebel against political authority. We should try to change it if it's bad and oppose it if it's evil, but we cannot rebel against political authority, even sinful political authority, for the Roman Empire was deeply sinful. Because God is the one that grants authority. When we rebel against duly constituted authority, we rebel against God. I'll never forget the the sermon title of an old preacher many years ago on this topic. There's a lot of truth in it. He was titled, It's God They're After. It's God They're After. When we see attacks today on on the family, attacks on the church of Jesus Christ, attacks on uh, godly government, it's really the attack on God. It's because people can't quite directly get to God. 
I was interested a few months ago to read there's noted atheistic pop artists that have even written about it. You may have heard, if you're a child of the 60s and 70s like me, you may have heard of the rock band Steely Dan. They wrote a very interesting and perverse song a number of years ago called God Whacker. And here are some of the lyrics. In the beginning, we could hang with the dude. But it's been too much of nothing of that stank attitude. Now they curse your name and there's a bounty on your face. It's all your own fault, Daddy. Godwhacker's on the case. We track your mighty profanity through seven heaven worlds. Me, Slinky Redfoot, and our trusty angel girls. And when the stars bleed out, that be the fever of the chase. You better get gone, Poppy. Godwhacker's on the case. The apostate world is convinced that if they can just whack old Poppy, the sovereign triune God, they'll be free at last. But it hasn't quite turned out the way that they had hoped. Another famous rock musician, more reverent, Bob Dylan once sang, it may not be the devil, it may not be the Lord, but you've got to serve somebody. In getting freedom from God, modern men have become enslaved to all sorts of idols. Man lives by authority, and since he has turned aside from God, he seeks other gods, other falsely authoritative words. I'm reminded of Isaiah 8, 19, and 20. I here relish the language of the King James Version. I'll just read it to you. Powerful statement. Beautiful. It's during a time of great trial, and there was to be a great attack of one of Israel's enemies, and people were frightened. And then listen to these words. And when they shall say to you, Seek unto them that have familiar spirits, and unto wizards that peep and that mutter. Should not a people seek unto their God, for the living to the dead? To the law and to the testimony. If they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. No light. The Assyrians were soon invading apostate Israel, and the Jews were just petrified. Wild rumors, fearful predictions were abounding. They were desperate for some answer, some authoritative answer. Words of secure assurance. Anywhere they were turning, anywhere but God's word. Anywhere. Necromancers, soothsayers, false prophets. And God said, there's only one and only Only one true and one infallible word, and that's mine. And friends, it's the same today. It's there. By the way, I'm going off script. Um, The Holy Spirit never led one person to do one thing contrary to his holy word. And if people ever say to you, well, I think the Holy Spirit led me to do such and such, and it's contrary to the word, I can assure you it wasn't the Holy Spirit who led it. It was another spirit but not the Holy Spirit. God's word is just as certain today. It's the Bible. We live in chaotic times. Words compete for our listening. Oh, so many competing words today. Everywhere. On your smartphone and on the TV and on the web and on the billboards, wherever. Politicians and celebrities and authors and false religions like Islam and Scientology and the New Age and psychologists and therapists. And they all claim to say in one way or another an authoritative final word. Craving a market of authority-starved sheep. Just give us a word. 
Well, they're all posers. They're all pretenders. They're all apostates, if they don't speak according to this word. My brothers and sisters, there's only one infallible word, and it's God's word, and it's here in the Bible. If they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. The Bible judges everything, and nothing is judged by the Bible. You know, even as Christians, we can become confused by this uh, cacophony of, of voices. They're on the web, TV, movies, on our digital phones. And we start sort of gradually to assimilate worldly ideas, even those of us who love God and his word. That is why it's so essential to read the word of God daily. And don't say you don't have enough time. If you have enough time to check Facebook or email somebody, you have enough time to read your Bible. The Bible is our standard, and if we drift, it brings us back to the truth. I've developed ideas sometimes that just kind of drift from the Word, and the next day or a couple days later, I'm reading the Word of God, and I say, oh my, I need to be reading the Word more often because it adjusts my mind and gets it back to the truth. Have you ever been singing, perhaps, in a, in a large um, group accompanied by uh, piano? And it's often the case, the piano will perhaps drop out for, for a verse of the song, and then resumes. And have you ever noticed that how very often when the piano resumes, the group has gotten very off-key when they're singing a cappella? But they didn't know that. They just thought they were singing along, and the piano dropped out, and we're all singing so well, then the piano comes back in, and your first thought is, why is the piano off-key? We're all singing fine. And then you think, well, no, actually, the piano hasn't changed, or we have changed. Then immediately, everybody kind of adjusts, and gets back on key. In the same way, when we get away from the word, we just start drifting. We don't intend to drift. We don't wake up in the morning and say, I think I'm going to start thinking some ungodly thoughts today. I think I'm going to drift away from the word. Wouldn't that be nice? No, generally, we don't do that. Just sort of by drifting away from the word of God, we drift away from God's truth and into error. Worldly ideas and practices start seeming reasonable to us. We start indulging ourselves in cruel thoughts and lustful thoughts and covetous thoughts. We get really short or loose with our tongue. We start accommodating worldly ideas popular in our culture. You know, maybe homosexuals aren't really too bad, and it's probably okay as long as they don't bother me. It's probably okay for young women to be sexually aggressive toward young men. Well, I mean, after all, we live in a modern world. Or telling the gospel out in public isn't really smart because, you know, it could, like, turn people off. And we know Jesus would never want us to turn people off. Now, those are pretty popular ideas in some quarters. And you know what? They're totally ungodly ideas. <laughs> but you wouldn't know that, probably, if you didn't know the word of God. I'm making a case for your reading the word of God consistently. Friends, if you need certainty in an uncertain world, and we all do, the only infallibly authoritative word is God's, and all of its competitors are false, and they will all fail you. They will all fail you. Second, God will abide no competitors to the affections of his people. I was reading recently Ezekiel 16. If you're taking notes, you may want to write that down. I hope that you read that 
pathos-filled, agonizing chapter. It's really an extended metaphor. Jehovah is the husband and, and Israel is the wife. And he found her as an orphan, abandoned in the field in her own birth blood, just thrown in the field. And he cleaned her up. And then when she was of age, he married her. And oh, how he decked her out beautifully. And he gave her great riches. But Israel betrayed her divine husband. She prostituted herself with the pagan gods and the nation surrounding her. You read the grief in the Bible of a, of a betrayed husband's heart in that chapter. And worst of all, he says, like an, unlike an ordinary prostitute, Israel paid her illicit lovers rather than demanding payment. He's, God says, I can't believe it. I can't believe what you have done. And then if you keep reading, God's sadness gives way to jealousy, and he sent nations to punish his unfaithful bride because she refused to turn to him who loved her so much. God refuses to allow his people to share their affections for him. There's an emotional element here with God that we can't escape. The Jews' adultery brought to great grief to God's heart. You know, it's wrong to believe that God is an emotionless being. Now, his emotions don't overcome overcome him or cause him to lose control of himself, as they do with us sometimes. But the God of the Bible is full of holy emotion. The Bible says that God loves passionately, and God gets very angry. God gets furious. His love is passionate. His anger at sin burns, and he grieves at the spiritual adultery of his people who are seduced by the nations around them. But you know, that's a, that's a constant temptation in any age. And I would say particularly in our age. The sinful nations and worldly cultures just allure us. I mean, today there are more allurements than ever. The great Vanity Fair. If John Bunyan could see the Vanity Fair of today, what would he write about? Eye candy everywhere we look. Customized iTunes playlists, opulent mansions, exotic drugs, TV celebrities. The possibility for seduction is everywhere. And unless we make a pointed, intentional effort to stay in communion with God, we will drift from him. I say we must be very intentional about this. I'm saying your attitude cannot be, well, you know, Trinity Evangelical is a good church, and I will always go there on Sunday. And, you know, throughout the week, I, I probably don't think about the Lord much. But it's, it's sort of good to be in contact with the church, and I love Pastor Enoch and so on. But that will not suffice. You must make an intentional effort every day to stay close to God, or you will be seduced by the evil surrounding you, as will I. Ours is an age of utter distractions. You know, some of us can't sit quietly for five minutes without checking for iPhone messages. I've come to believe there's something diabolical about this distractedness. You heard me say it, diabolical. The godly saints in the Bible, including our Lord, all required solitude to stay close to the Father. Let me put it another way. You can't be a good Christian unless you spend time alone with God. You say, well, I don't really have that time. That is false. You can have time if you will make the time. You say, I'm very busy. You're not too busy to check your iPhone or 
to watch Bill O'Reilly or whatever. Yes, we have time if we make the time. See, the real question is what is our priority? That's the question. Time in prayer, time in reading the word. It's remarkable. Fifteen minutes of prayer and reading the word every morning will draw you close to the triune God. And everybody here can do it, and I mean everybody. Um, In his famous sermon, The Eternal Weight of Glory, I don't know how many of you have read. Have you read C.S. Lewis's sermon, The Eternal Weight of Glory? It's just, you can download it on the web, speaking of the web. Download it and read it. You can read it in 15 or 20 minutes. Lewis speaks like Augustine did before him of the internal void each of us carries that only God can fill. Brother and sister, we live in a God-rigged universe. This means that we can't violate God's truth or moral law and get away with it. But it means more. It means man himself is God-rigged. Isn't that beautiful? We can't find hope and satisfaction in anything but what God intended us for. And what he intended us for is lifelong communion with and obedience to him. And that's why Mick Jagger was actually right. Can't get no satisfaction. That's right. Apart from God, you can't get any satisfaction. And God rigged it that way. He rigged it that way. All of our obedience, our cultural mandate, our love for the family and friends, our vocation is meant to flow out of our communion with him. Would you like to know what the root cause is of alcoholism and drug addiction and sex addiction and gaming addiction and consumer materialism and body modification and all of these other things? They're attempts to find satisfaction in life apart from God. That's what they are. That's what they are. God has made man so that we can find satisfaction only in him. All apostasy of the heart, all turning away from communion with him, will end in utter disaster. There's an old statement, if something can't continue, it won't. And that's why all of this evil, I'm not terribly worried about all the evil in the world. I oppose it. The wonderful thing is, it can't continue. And it won't. It won't. We live in a God-rigged universe. God is jealous over our communion with him because he knows that apart from that communion, we are headed to the path of destruction. So I plead with you this morning, if you've drifted from your love for and communion with the triune God, return to him. And the Bible says he will return to you. God is always eager to return to his people who are willing to turn to him. I can't tell you how many times in the Bible he says that. If you will turn to me, I will turn to you. He'll fill you with satisfaction and joy, and nothing in the world can compete with it. Finally, God will abide no competitors to his allegiance by the world that he created. I'd like to read one of the royal psalms. It's called Psalm 47. Listen to these words. Clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with loud songs of joy. Say, well, I don't like singing loudly. Well, there's a lot of singing loudly in the Bible. And there's nothing wrong with singing loudly, as long as you're on key. Sing loudly. For the Lord, the Most High, is to be feared, a great king 
over all the earth. Sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our king. Sing praises. For God is the king of all the earth. Sing praises with a psalm. God reigns over the nation. God sits on his holy throne. Do you know during our praise and worship time, today, today, when the musicians were up here, we were obeying this psalm. That's what we were doing. We were singing praises to the great king. We were obeying what God was saying. Every Sunday that you do that, you're obeying the word of God, and God is so pleased. I could multiply verses like that. We come to the New Testament. We read that the Father has granted kingship to his Son, Jesus Christ, over all the earth. We read about it in Acts 2, Philippians 2, other texts. Psalm 110 predicts that God the Father would grant his Son all the peoples of the earth. Jesus is the world's king, and all other kings must bow to him. He abides no competitors. Now today, our Western world is awash in multiculturalism. Things are a little different in the East. They have their own problems. China, Russia, they've developed sort of a new nationalism, haven't they? Then there's the evil religion of Islam that strangles much of the Middle East and claims absolute allegiance. But we of the West suffer from something a little different, multiculturalism. Basically, this is the attitude that all cultures are valid in their own right, and no culture is inherently superior to another. No culture should try to impose its will upon another. I mean, this is utterly hypocritical, isn't it? Most of the people that claim to be humanitarian liberals would be horrified at any racist culture or homophobic culture or xenophobic culture. But nobody really talks about that hypocrisy. Their real enemy, you see, is Christian culture. Uh, They refuse Jesus Christ as their king. In our day, what they especially resent is his moral law as it relates to sex. That's what they hate. In Theodore, Theodore Dalrymple's language, they want all sex, all the time, on their own conditions. Because God lays down the law about sex for our good, they despise his law, they despise his kingship. And therefore they embrace alternative allegiances, like the secular state, which squashes religious liberty and economic liberty and family liberty. But it expands sexual liberty, and that's what they want. You see, modern people are willing to give up vast areas of liberty as long as they can become sexual libertines. Think about that. We would like a big state. We don't mind a big state. We don't mind a strangling state economically and many other ways as long as it doesn't bother our sex lives. They're willing to make that trade. But multiculturalism also infests the church. We even detect it in comments by alleged Christians. Well, Jesus didn't judge, and the most Christ-like people are the most non-judgmental people. I've kind of heard that over the years, and I've become convinced that most of the people who use the term Christ-like don't know what Christ was really like. They just don't read their Bibles. Because if you read the Gospels, you'll quickly discover Jesus judged righteously all the time. 
Every time you turn around, he's judging righteously. This multiculturalism in the church leads Christians to talk and act just like secular humanists. Uh, Christians say, uh, it's okay for us to have our religion and believe in marriage as one man and one woman and believe that unborn children shouldn't be aborted. But that's just our view. We shouldn't try to impose that on anybody else. Now, if you'll think about it, that's precisely the secular humanist view. It really is. You're allowed to act like Christians in your home and in your church. Just don't try to act like Christians out in society and the culture. Can you imagine our Lord and the early Christians speaking that way? Can you imagine? Can you imagine Jesus Christ or Paul or Peter or James or Matthew saying, we should follow the Bible and God's truth privately but not publicly? Remember that in what we call the Lord's Prayer, Jesus instructs his disciples to pray, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Everywhere on earth, not just in the family and the church. But because of the uh, plausibility structure of our surroundings, our environment today, by plausibility structure, I mean what almost everybody considers normal. Because of that, Almost everybody that we meet buys into the multicultural lie, and we can easily, as the people of God, feel intimidated. We're reluctant to speak the truth publicly. We're afraid to say Jesus Christ is the only way of salvation, though that is very true. And not to say it is being unkind, because people need to be saved by hearing that truth. You say, well, that might offend someone. If we say Jesus is the only way. You're right, it might, and it also is the truth. It is the truth, and it needs to be said. Or homosexuality is sin, and homosexual marriage is a farce. Or Obamacare is legalized theft. You say, well, I don't want any resistance. That's not really a Christian virtue, not wanting resistance. In fact, I will say wherever the gospel is preached truthfully and with great love and great force, it will meet resistance in a sinful world. That's part of what it means to be a Christian. You say, well, I'm not sure if I want to be that kind of Christian. Well, I'm sorry, there isn't another kind. You can join another religion, just don't be a Christian. Let's stand up to the courage of our convictions and let's be Christians. We need to change our thinking and our acting. This is not the devil's world in which we are visitors. This is not the devil's world in which we are visitors. This is the Lord's world that Satan and his followers have usurped. They've sneaked on over here and have put up pup tents and are acting like they're kings, but they're not. Our calling by the power of the Spirit and the preaching of the gospel is to announce and implement Christ's full kingship. We're the right ones. Yes, we're sinful. Yes, we fail. Yes, we should be humble. But we're on the right side. We serve the right king. The question is not how good we are. The question is, are we on the right side? We absolutely are. We're on the side of the king of kings and lord of lords. We're the confident ones. We're the legitimate heirs. We are the victors. It's easy to become discouraged in our age of chaotic multiculturalism. We see the world gone mad with all of its competing allegiances. 
When that happens, let's remember the ironclad promise in Daniel chapter 2. You'll recall there Nebuchadnezzar's dream about the four world empires, you know, the great image and the four parts of it that designated four world empires. Babylon, the Medes and the Persians, and then the Greeks, and finally on the feet, the legs and the feet, the Roman Empire. And then Daniel prophesies, and this is a wonderful statement in verse 44. Daniel prophesies this. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. People are always worried in the future about there being a one world government. Well, can I tell you, here's the good news. There is a one world government. Oh, no, Andrew. I thought I heard about that conspiracy. There's really a one world government? Yes, I'm here to tell you there is. And behind it is Jesus Christ. His is the only one world empire and government, and there will never be another. That's the prophecy of Daniel. There cannot be another. The Roman Empire was the last one. And then Christ came. Not the Byzantine Empire, not the Ottoman Empire, not Nazi Germany, not the Soviet Union, and not the United States. There is one final empire in human history, and that is the world empire of King Jesus, Savior and Lord. That divine kingdom will not be left to another people. It will break in pieces all of these kingdoms, and it will bring them to an end. Friends, when we look at our world and become discouraged, just remember this. On the authority of the word of God, Messiah will have his kingdom. It is his birthright, and he will have it. It's predestined. It cannot fail. John writes this prophetically. Sharon and I saw this verse. We were privileged to go to London this past year, and we visited Westminster Abbey. Oh, what an amazing place, built for the glory of God. There are some sinful things in there, but the edifice was built for the glory of God. And right on the platform, and oh, how opulent and regal it is, where all of the royalty are crowned. And there's the chair. I mean, the chair where the kings and queens and the next king, when he is crowned, will sit. There is this verse written hundreds of years ago. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. God will abide no competitors to his authority among men. He will abide no competitors to the affections of us, his people. He will abide no competitors to his allegiance by the world. I close with Isaiah 42, verse 8a. God says this, I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I will give to no other. Father, may the truths of your word find a permanent place in our hearts. Forgive us for straying from you. We know you are a justly and righteously jealous God, that you love us as your people and you care for us. And you're passionate to have us in communion with you. Keep us close to you, O God. Lord, at times our world seems to be in chaos, and yet it is your world. And you will accomplish 
your will in this world and righteousness will reign and your son will have his kingdom. He is already enthroned and it will push forward relentlessly. I know, Father, we look forward to the day when your knowledge will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. May we until then be faithful to you. May we delight in you. May we rejoice in you. May we rejoice in the good things of creation that you have done. May your hand bless this congregation and its pastor and family in ways they cannot imagine, as Isaiah 64 says, that eye has not seen nor ear heard what you will do for those who simply wait for you. We pray it, Father, in the name of your Son, Jesus, who gave himself on the cross and who is alive for us today and as King of kings and Lord of lords. In his name we pray. Amen.